It's 1921. A small contingent of Armenian saints in Turkey struggle to flee the violence aimed at them following World War I. With faith and the fasting of church members in Utah, these brave souls escape to Syria. Across the ocean in Canada, the saints build a temple on a hill in Cardston. In both circumstances, sincere offerings of beauty lift the church. These diverse stories are next in chapter 15, No Greater Reward. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is Emily Utt, a curator in the Church History Department, and James Goldberg, a writer and historian. Thank you both for joining us today. We're so excited to have you both on the podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Emily, listeners may recognize you from previous podcasts and from a video published by the church last year talking about the opening of the Salt Lake Temple capstone. Can you tell us more about what you do in your job? Sure. So I work in the Historic Sites Division of the Church History Department, and my role is to help us celebrate and understand the historical architecture of the church. So I work with other historians, but I also work with architects and contractors on preserving historic places that have great meaning to the church and to the world in general. And it's really fun. You get to open things like temple capstones, and I get to crawl around in basements and walk up and down stairs, walked up and down by people that lived 200 years ago. It's a lot of fun. Well, James, perhaps for our listeners, you could tell them a little bit about what you've been involved in with regards to church history in the past. Yeah, of course. I've done research into a lot of different periods and topics in church history, but but one of my favorite things is the stories of discipleship around the global church. So the different ways that people have tried to follow Christ in different times, places, settings under different pressures. I think we can learn so much from that. Well, thank you. We're excited to have both of you join us today to talk about this chapter in which we see many different things taking place and going from quite extreme geographical areas. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about the church internationally. And at this point in the series, we have seen Latter-day Saints as refugees in several different locations. And here we're introduced to a group of Armenian converts who are now having to flee to Syria. They're leaving their homes. And I think readers might be interested to know more about who these people were and perhaps to know some of their stories and some of their experiences. And James, I wonder if you might be willing to to take a moment to tell us about who these Latter-day Saints are and what they're experiencing. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So these stories begin around the time that World War I has ended, although the, the beginnings and ends of those world wars are usually based on treaties in Europe, right? <laughs> For the actual experience of a person living in a different place, the instability and violence and hunger can start earlier and end later. So there were a number of Latter-day Saints who had lived in what prior to the war and during the war was known as the Ottoman Empire, and the war years were really difficult. So Artis Partial, a colleague of mine, when I was first working on this story, had introduced me to a man by the name of Moses Ndoyan in sources, 
and he and his son Abraham had both been soldiers. So they were prisoners of war in Egypt after they'd been captured by the British. And Moses Hendoyan returns home after the armistice to find that his branch has just been devastated. As is often the case during times of conflict, people blame minorities. The Armenians were an ethnic minority and a religious minority. And so there'd just been this terrible systematic violence against them. And Moses returns home to find the branch presidency in his branch in the town of Antab in what's now Turkey had all been killed. A lot of the members were scattered. In those days, we didn't try to ordain everyone quickly to be elders. Moses Ndoyan was a priest because those were the kinds of responsibilities and callings he'd had. And as a priest, it sort of fell to him to gather people as he was able and see what he could find. One of those members who he found when he returned, her name was Yerenik Kadikian. And her story had been that she'd been young and newly married. She and her husband were taken out to the desert as one of these campaigns of rounding up Armenians. Her husband was shot and killed. And for several years, she'd been in forced labor, looking for a way to escape, finally got home and wasn't able to find family members yet. And so really the church was the first family she was reunited with. So when you read in saints about these Armenian saints needing to move, just know that they've come from years of violence that's affecting them in different ways individually and also affecting their whole networks, friends, family, relationships, that's all changed. And another issue is just physical hunger. There's an account from the time that members are gathering leaves from trees to eat because that's kind of the food they can find. So it's a really extreme situation they're in. It's such an extreme situation, and we really appreciate this greater context than Saints is able to give. James, could you give us some more background on how the church came to be in this area originally? Yeah. So the church by this time had been there for quite a long time. The first contact with missionaries came in 1884. There was a man who in records is just known as Mr. Vartugian, who sent letters to missionaries from Istanbul, asking them to come. I think a lot of times we think of missionaries going out and opening out different countries. In most cases, that's the second step. The first step was someone who was already there, developing an interest in the church, or maybe having encountered the church in a different place sending her a request. And it's the same in the Ottoman Empire. By the early 1900s, there were four large branches. Most of those converts were ethnic Armenians. So they'd speak the Armenian language, although a lot of them spoke Turkish as well. The, the copies of the Book of Mormon that they were reading from were Turkish, but in the Armenian alphabet, because that was sort of the best way to split the difference. Many of them had previously been members of the Armenian Apostolic Church, which is one of the oldest Christian churches in the world. Others had been Protestants. So they were an important part of the church in that part of the world. There were other groups. There were some Germans living in Haifa, in what's now Israel, who had joined the church. There were some Arabic speakers. There was some interest from Muslims, but in that social and political climate, it was complicated to convert that way. So the, the members of the church mostly came from these Christian backgrounds. Can I jump in something there? Since there is actually a temple connection here, an Armenian family living in Antab in the 1890s donated a rug to the Salt Lake Temple that was put in a suitcase of one of the missionaries and brought back to Utah. 
and was eventually placed in the first presidency's council room at the Salt Lake Temple. So every apostle who walked into that room from the 1890s until it was probably removed in the 40s or 50s walked on a rug that had been donated by one of these early converts to the church from this Armenian group. And so there's this legacy here. It's not just this little group of ragtag people. These are people that are kind of central to the story of the church in these years and are known to people in Salt Lake as being faithful, stalwart members of the church. And these rugs are really beautiful. There were a lot of talented weavers in the branches there. And a lot of times they would put their own artistic vision into things as well. So you'll see Latter-day Saint scenes on some of the rugs that have survived from them, that they'll maybe depict covered wagons and the pioneer exodus and those things. Those stories meant a lot to them. That's so neat. What a meaningful connection. I really love that. My first introduction to the Armenian saints came quite a few years ago now when I came across Armenian Latter-day Saints who before and around this time of difficulty that they're experiencing came through London on their way over to to the United States and uh, found these great photographs of Armenian saints stood with some of these missionaries serving in the British mission. And they really are these incredibly faithful souls who have, despite losing their homes, despite losing some of their possessions, they retain their faith and they're willing to leave the region that they have all these connections to, to go to this foreign land. And part of that ongoing gathering, they have an important story to tell. I think that's a familiar thing for the church in a lot of places. I know my mission was in the former East Germany, and I served in a city called Gera. And they joked there were three Gera branches, one in Gera, one in West Germany of people who had moved over to that side of the country and another one in the United States. And the one in Gera was the smallest of the three. (laughs) And in the same way, I think these Armenian saints, there were the branches there. But yeah, there were a lot of Armenian members in Europe who had moved and then many in the United States in Utah who'd gathered with the saints there. And they're an important part of the story. I'd mentioned earlier that Moses Hindoyan comes home after the war to find this chaos and these problems, and he's just trying to keep the saints together. Well, part of what they do is send letters to those saints. There's a sister in Utah named Esther Plowgian, and they write to her in particular and explain what's going on. And so you have an interesting thing where at the same time, the saints in Antab are holding this eight-day fast for deliverance, and saints in Utah and the surrounding areas are holding a fast for the Armenian saints and then donating things that can be sent over to help them as the mission gets reestablished. So definitely in the church now, we see those connections where people in one place, as we migrate, we connect to each other, we're brothers and sisters in the gospel. And that was true a hundred years ago, every bit as much. Yeah. I think another thing to, to highlight is that sometimes we have to, and we're warned about this all the time, but assuming we hear of the, you know, somewhere like Syria or Lebanon or some of these far off places where how could the church have been there? But they actually have this rich history of sacrifice, of members living the gospel and missionaries serving in some of these places. And I think when it comes to saints as a publication, hopefully that will help educate our readers to know not just the North American history of the church, but the whole rich tapestry of church history that extends to every inch of the globe. 
Yeah, the same way these saints in Antep and later Aleppo were weavers, were weaving together all kinds of stories. And they took Utah pioneer stories and felt some ownership to them. I think for me, their example as refugees is another really important layer to that pioneer story that unites us all. Absolutely. And you shared a little bit about their journey. What happened to these saints who made it in Syria? James, we would love to hear from you about that. Right. So the saints had been been fasting for deliverance. They'd written these letters and the church then reestablishes the mission. The mission had been closed. So the first thing the mission president goes to do is figure out how do we take care of things. And borders were still changing. So you end up with a period where people in Antep are worried that as the border changes, that it's going to be dangerous to continue to live there. So they're looking to move south into Syria, which was French controlled at the time. It's not a long journey, but the road was dangerous. Actually, Joseph Booth, who was the mission president, said at the time that the French warned him not to go to Antab if he wanted to live. Who, who knows what was going to happen on that road? But he felt like th- this was what he was called to do. So he went to meet with the saints there. Another obstacle, which is really familiar for a lot of refugees today, was just getting the permission to go. So even though the journey was only about 80 miles, they had to go lobby for passports to leave. And they wanted to go together. They didn't want to go alone. So they were requesting 50 passports, which was quite a lot at the time. But something about their faith, their persistence, their insistence that they go together was able to impress the officials, and they were able to get those passports. And actually, it's interesting, we've got photos from their exodus, and it's in these covered wagons, right? They went as a group, and the only difference is you can maybe see camels, (laughs) as well as the horses that you might have seen in the United States as part of those images. But it's very much a pioneer sort of journey that meant a lot to them. And then Aleppo had been one of the branches, so there were members there waiting to welcome them. Initially, a lot of the refugees moved all into two different places together. There were two places where they found places to stay. So you had members living in very close proximity to each other as they were getting established. Yerina Kadikian, who had mentioned earlier, was able to find that her brother had independently arrived in Aleppo. So that reunification was able to happen when she arrived. Once they got there, there were still economic problems. There were still problems of discrimination that they were dealing with, but they were able to establish a really flourishing branch. They published their own little newspaper. They had an essay contest a few years later that was about accounts of their exodus, and people would write that story. We've got photos of plays that they performed. I loved their uh, Book of Mormon play was called The Death of a Drunkard and Five Weddings in One Night, which is an interesting way to talk about the death of Laban and the marriages between Ishmael's family and Lehi's family. Tons of people from the community came to that, you know, really well attended. Yerina Kadikian served in the Relief Society presidency, and we've got great letters from them talking about how we were poor, but we still had opportunities to serve others whose needs were greater than ours. And so even in those early years, as they were getting reestablished, they were receiving help, but they were also giving help and looking for opportunities to serve. So really, it's a wonderful story of what they were able to do and how they carved out a new life for themselves individually and as a group, a community. 
James, we're introduced to the Armenian saints here as part of a wider trip that David O'McKay and Hugh Cannon are undertaking. I mean, here we are, 1921, 101 years ago, where we've got church leaders going out and trying to, to minister and experience the church. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the significance of this tour being undertaken by David O. McKay and Hugh Cannon. Yeah, I think it's one thing to have a sense intellectually from a distance of what other people might be experiencing, but you don't know which questions to ask until you get there and see how people are living and sit down with them. One thing Hugh Cannon says about this experience in a letter home is if the saints could see what life was like there right as the refugees are coming, they would have fasted for a month to help. I mean, he just really acutely felt that need. Another thing I remember David O. McKay saying is he was just so impressed with the, they had a district conference and bits of the conference were in Turkish, Armenian, Arabic, French, all these languages. And it just impressed him so much. I think sometimes today when someone's a refugee or an immigrant somewhere, people will assume they're not very sophisticated. They don't know a lot. And they don't realize a lot of these people, they've crossed borders, they've picked up multiple things. And so that command of multiple languages and cultures comes really naturally. But I think it helped church leaders to think about the needs of an international church differently, to see the church in a place that was already a tapestry of different cultures and languages and needs. So yeah, I think there are lots of things then or now that you only start to appreciate by really spending time with people and seeing how they're living. And that world tour was an important part of a developing mindset for leaders where they started to learn what questions should we be concerned with because they'd sat down and learned from the experience of their fellow saints. Absolutely. I think we see that in the ministry of, of President Nelson and, and other senior church leaders today. I mean, in the news, we hear of regular visits to international locations as the church leaders try to do exactly that. They try to get the pulse of the church, not just from reports passed on or summaries passed up the chain, but to actually be there, to look into the faces of the saints and to see the kinds of things that they're experiencing and I think you're right. This is one of those hinge points for the church as they start to look outwards more than they have done. James, as you've been researching this experience, this topic, these saints, what are some of the things that you came across that were meaningful to you? I mean, I think the whole story was important to me. These are some of my favorite saints that I've ever gotten a chance to study. Just as I've seen how faith operated individually from them, I felt really privileged on this story, too, to be able to connect with and meet Melva Hindoyan Amrazian. So her grandfather was Moses Hindoyan. Her father, Abraham, was also on the Exodus. He won the essay contest that they'd held that I'd mentioned earlier. And I got to see how these experiences were woven into their family's identity and remained part of that identity. She passed away just two years ago. So, yeah, I feel fortunate to have been able to go over to her house. She cooked some. I could see her in the kitchen. She showed me some of the lace work she does. In the Church History Museum, they have an Armenian-style lace tree of life that Melva Hindoya Nemrazian made. And to her, that tree of life reminds her not only of Lehi wanting to share with his family, 
but of her grandfather Moses and what he went through to share the gospel with his family, with his community. And that meant a lot to her. Well, thank you so much, James. Emily, did you want to say anything else about... So I was thinking about James's comment about the world tour and the impact and the kind of shift it, it made for church leaders in the 1920s. But that impact went on and on for decades. So as we get into almost the end of this volume of Saints, you're going to see the impact of that world tour on David O. McKay and his decision to build temples in New Zealand and in Switzerland and in England. And the entire approach to his presidency, I think, was impacted by these early visits to other places of the world. That This idea that you don't really know what members are thinking until you can talk to them. You need to be with them. Well, thank you very much, Emily. And that brings up the point that in this chapter, we are in many different places. And I wonder if we could just take a step over to North America, where we are able to read about the construction and dedication of the Cardston Temple. Now, when I joined the church and I met some missionaries from Canada, I mean, I, I didn't know much about Canada, I confess, but I had never heard of this Cardston place. But because I met so many missionaries over the years from Cardston, I was like, this must be a really big city. But the fact of the matter is that it's actually rather small as Canadian cities go, at least as I understand it. But could you perhaps get us started by telling us why on earth there's a temple being constructed in Cardston, Canada at this time? So calling it a city would be generous. Cardston is a town, slightly larger than a village. <laughs> Latter-day Saints moved to southern Canada, Alberta area, really starting in the 1880s in an effort to not only expand the borders of Zion, but also an attempt to be able to practice polygamy. As the U.S. law made it more and more difficult to practice polygamy, the, the idea was we will send members of the church to Canada and to Mexico, where they could practice this part of our faith um, a little more freely, where the laws do, don't prohibit it. And so there were these huge congregations of very faithful Latter-day Saints living in southern Canada. And in the early 20th century, the nearest temple was in Utah. That is almost impossible to get to. You're going to spend days, weeks trying to get to Utah to be able to go to the temple. And so the idea was not only to build a temple in Canada, but to build one in Hawaii, because you had these very faithful saints who had been there for decades, who wanted access to those blessings. And what is remarkable to me about Cardston is that church leadership is also very aware of how much the world is shifting. They aren't just building another pioneer temple. They're not going to call Brigham Young's brother-in-law or father-in-law or cousin to design a temple, they are realizing that the world has changed. Architecture in the United States had changed dramatically. You can now go to architecture school and learn how to do this professionally. And so in Cardston, church leadership sponsored a competition and they invited 14 different architects to submit their very best designs. Seven architects responded. And the design they chose was from this young upstart architectural firm who had no business designing one of the best buildings the church has ever seen. Architects usually hit their stride in their 40s and 50s. You know, you have a few decades, you've learned the trade. These two young guys, Hiram Pope and Harold Burton, were in their late 20s. And they won this competition and they designed one of the best buildings in the church, which is fantastic. 
That's so exciting. I love hearing that story. And Emily, since we have you here, what other lesser known facts about the temple can you share with us? Well, how much time do we have? No, um, <laughs> what, what makes this temple so wonderful to me is that it almost seems hewn out of that hill. For uh, people that had lived in this area for 30 years, there was some thought, oh, maybe we'll go back to Utah someday. That it almost seems that they built a temple out of the very rock of that hill. And so you drive into this little teeny tiny town, and there is this magnificent little jewel box of a building built of granite. It is solid and it is substantial and it feels like a fortress. And when those big winter winds and snowstorms blow through that town, that temple is going to be permanent and it is going to stay. It's just remarkable. The other theme that I love about the design of this temple is how modern it is. They designed a temple in the latest most up-to-date, trendiest style available to them. And we look at it now 100 years old and we think it's historic. But for them, it was a statement about the future. They were looking to the future. They designed their building in the Prairie School style, popularized by Frank Lloyd Wright. And they designed a building that was rich in ornament and rich in detail and celebrated the craftsmanship of those who built it. We often think of temples that they have to be white and they have to be very light color to represent heaven. Well, in Cardston, they went the opposite. They said color and the richness of material will evoke the ideas of heaven. So as you move through the Cardston temple, the woodwork gets richer and darker. It's oak when you're in the main lobby space. It is mahogany in the celestial room and it is walnut in the ceiling rooms. So it is this rich dark, very earthy building reminding you of the beauty of God's creation while you're in a temple. I could go on for a while more. Let me tell you one more story. There's another detail in this temple that I love. This temple is known for its murals by some of the very best muralists that the church had to offer in the early 20th century. And I actually just learned recently that one of the muralists was assisted by a woman named Florence Christensen. And if my research holds, she is probably the first woman to be actively involved in temple design and construction. And so if you go to Cardston, you see one of the first attempts by women to be really involved in the design, which I love. But one of my favorite murals in this temple is in the terrestrial room, what we call the veil room. And in this room is where you prepare to symbolically meet God. And in that room and in all of our lives, there is this tension. Am I worthy? Am I the person that I should be to be able to be in the presence of God? And the artist in that room decided to paint scenes of Christ's atonement and of Christ at the tomb resurrected. So in that moment of highest tension, will I make it? Am I worthy of God's love? You have an image of Christ and Mary at the tomb. And Christ is saying, I have died for you. I have been resurrected for you. And you will make it because if you follow me, if you follow my gospel, you will be able to be with the presence of God. And I love that visual reminder when I am in that room that no matter how unworthy I think I am, Christ has covered for me. Well, what a temple. Thank you, Emily. So, James Perry, I know you haven't heard about Cardston, but my grandpa's from that area. He lived in what's now. 
literally a ghost town, just 20 miles southeast. But I wish he was still alive because he wasn't a member of the church at this time, but he would have been around when this temple was being built. And I would love to ask him what he and his family thought about this building. But Emily, do we know anything about how the temple was received by non-Latter-day Saint residents? This temple was almost universally loved because of really the impact it was having on this town. These are very small farming communities. And so to have an organization that is so invested in their town that they are going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, they are going to basically hire anybody who works in construction. So this construction of this temple in some ways helped save the economy of these towns. Everybody in this area knows about the building. They know they're working on the building. And so it's going to have a big impact. People are going to be very positive about it. James, there are so many different stories in each of these chapters. And I wondered if there are any lines that could be drawn between the two that we've talked about today, the Cardston Temple and the Armenian Saints. I definitely feel like there are. It's interesting to me how both of these stories come from groups and populations that we might think of them as isolated today, right? If you see people who are refugees or who live in a rural area way out of the way of everything, these aren't the kinds of populations people naturally associate with great art. And yet, there's that longing there in both places to bring something beautiful to the Lord, to weave it into their worship. And so whether it's the Armenian saints sending gifts for display in Salt Lake Temple, or the saints in Cardston really making the most of this beautiful temple space in their own town that you otherwise wouldn't expect just in a small community. So I think there's a lesson for us today that there's a spiritual power in seeking beauty and making that part of our worship and to just have our eyes open to those types of spiritual gifts wherever they come from. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and to just enjoy all of these extra insights and stories you've shared with us. So once again, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you. <laughs>